Wow, what a crowd. Thanks for being here this morning. We appreciate your presence very much. <clears throat> Got some visitors with us, some actually from my work. I especially appreciate them coming and being here and, and honoring us with the presence this morning. Happy Father's Day to those uh, fathers in the audience. Some of you have earned the right to be called grandparents and grandfathers and great-grandparents and great-grandfathers and we appreciate all of you and the leadership that you provide. Except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain that build it. That's what uh, Brother Zach read to us this morning. And we're going to talk about the family a little bit this morning and about the, um, the roles of fathers in the family. And we'll talk a little bit about wives too and marriage and all of that. We're going to talk about uh, the home and what we should do in, in relation to the home. I've entitled the lesson this morning, Focus on the Family. As arrows are in the hands of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Blessed is a man that hath his quiver full of them. And we're going to lay the, uh, the uh, sport or the art of archery alongside our lives and building a home this morning. And we're going to talk about what we need to do to hit the bullseye. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So Brother Zach read the text, and I wanted to start by the first, uh, with the first uh, the first line in there. And I want to look at those words, except, and the, the uh, Zach read out of a different translation. I don't know what that was, NIV maybe, or some, New King James. The Pew Bibles, or the Old King James says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And the word except means that we're going to set two things at odds with one another. It would be like, I'm going to go, I'd like to go buy that new car, except it costs too much. So because it costs too much, I can't go buy the new car. And this says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. So if you're going to build the house and you're not going to put the Lord in it, then what you're doing is in vain. The word vain basically means it's useless, it's worthless, it's, it's, it's of no value. So unless you're going to let the Lord build your house, the home that you're going to build is of no value. And it goes on to talk about a policeman or a watchman that keeps the city. Unless the Lord's involved, he waketh but in vain. It talks about the vanity of rising up early, like that's something important, or the vanity of staying up late, like that's something important. I heard a preacher say one time that really the only problem is if those two people tend to marry each other. And so one wants to stay up late and one wants to get up early, and that can be a problem in the home. But the Bible here is talking about vanity, and it's talking about things that don't matter. And it says it doesn't matter. Your home doesn't matter. It is worthless unless you let the Lord help you build it. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain to build it. So we want to, we're going to talk a little bit about that. It goes on to say that, the, that low children are in heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. Heritage there means gift. Our children are a gift that the Lord has given us. I've got a poem. I don't usually read poems from the pulpit, but I found this poem, and it, uh, it's called, I'll Lend You a Child. And because of age, I need another utensil. Um, I'll lend you a child, and it's a, it's a poem written by Edgar Guest, and it's a poem written from the perspective of God for about the first three-fourths of the poem, and then it switches to our perspective, and it goes something like this. I'll lend you a child for a little time, a child of mine, he said, for you to love while he lives and mourn for, mourn for when he's dead. It may be six or seven years or twenty-two or three, but will you till I call him back take care of him for me? 
He'll bring his smiles to gladden you, and should this stay be brief, you'll have his loving memories as solace for your grief. I cannot promise he will stay since all from earth return, but there are lessons taught down there I want this child to learn. I've I've looked this world over and searched for teachers true, and from the throngs that crowd life's lanes, I have selected you. Now will you give him all your love, nor count him Count the labor vain, nor hate me when I come to call to take him back again. I, face, I fancied that I've heard them say, Dear Lord, thy will be done. For all the joy this child shall bring, the risk of grief will run. We'll shelter him with tenderness, we'll love him while we may. And for the happiness that we've known, forever grateful stay. But should the angels call for him much sooner than we planned, will brave the bitter grief that comes and try to understand. So from God's perspective, our children are a gift. They're given to us. They're not something that we possess and that we own. I heard, uh, I, heard uh, I was talking to Dad this week, and uh, Zig Ziglar used to say something. Somebody asked one time, how much, how much money did Howard Hughes leave behind? And Zig Ziglar's answer to that was he really left it all. I heard another story about a man that was about to die and he put all of his possessions in the attic. He said, when I die and my spirit raises, I'll get my possessions and I'll be able to take them to heaven with him. After he passed, his wife went in the attic, opened the trunk. Sure enough, his possessions were there and she said, I knew he should have put them in the basement. What that says is, we're not going to take anything on this earth with us. There's one exception to that and that is the ability to take our children. We can take our children to heaven with us. And that ought to be the most important thing to us while we're here. Can I get an amen? All right. So, except the Lord built a house, they labor in vain that build it. Children are in heritage. They're a reward given to us by God. Happy is a man that hath his quiver full of them. The first thing that I want us to recognize is that at some point in time, our children are going to need to be saved. And as parents, that's our responsibility. <clears throat> some religions believe that children are born with an inherited sin. We don't believe that. Some people believe that the original sin that Adam and Eve committed or is inherited down through the generations to all of the children. And so you're born with this sin. And therefore, when you're born, you need to be baptized and that sin needs to be washed away. We don't, we don't believe that. I believe that sin is something that is committed, not something that is inherited. We do suffer the consequences of sin. The Bible tells us that the consequences of sin will be visited on multiple generations. And we still suffer the consequences of that original sin that Adam and Eve committed. We're here today fighting sin because they ate the tree. They ate of the tree. If they hadn't eaten of that tree, we'd all be in the Garden of Eden running around naked. Right? No, knowing no different, knowing no sin. But they ate of that, and because they ate of that, sin has fallen down through the ages and fallen down through the world, and we live in a world that's full of sin today. But that sin is not something that we're, we're inherited. We are not responsible because they ate of the tree. We're going to be responsible and held accountable for the sins that we commit. The Bible puts it this way in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse number 20. It says, The soul that sinneth it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquities of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquities of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. That tells us that individually we're responsible for what we do and for the sins that we commit. 
Matthew chapter 19 puts it like this. But Jesus said, Suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. So children are something that Jesus, that he held them in high regard. He held them as precious in the sight. He wouldn't be saying that if these children had inherited sin. These children were still pure. He goes on to say, or actually a chapter before, he says, Verily I say unto you, or hey, listen up, this is important. Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But there comes a time in all of our lives, we usually refer to it as the age of accountability. It's a time in our lives where we've grown up to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Not only the difference between right and wrong that mom and dad say is right and wrong, but we come to a realization that there's a right and a wrong as far as what God says. God has a law, and if we violate that law, we sin against that law, and if we sin against that law, our punishment is death. There is a punishment for all sin. The only thing that changes that is if we accept the blood of Jesus and His blood covers that sin. So when we stand before God, He sees Jesus' blood on us instead of our own sin. So that's the difference. But there comes a point in time in every child's life, and it's not the matter of a flip of a calendar or the, the ticking of a watch, or it's not the matter of counting birthdays. It's a matter of their realization that I am doing stuff that Almighty God doesn't want me to do. And I am sinning against that law. John puts it, First John puts it this way. Whosoever committeth sins transgresseth also the law, for sin is a transgression of the law. So again, sin is something that is committed not something that's inherited. But our children are going to need to be saved. So what if we don't? What if as moms and dads we don't do what we're supposed to do? Well, I think you'd feel a little bit like Jacob. You remember that story? When the brothers come back and report that Joseph is dead, they, they lie to their dad and say he's dead. They sold him into bondage. They come back and they lie to Jacob and they say, Jacob, your son is dead. And Jacob says in the... In, uh, uh, help me out, Kobe... Genesis 37, Kobe and I looked it up last night. Genesis 37, it says um, um, that Jacob refused to be comforted, but rather was determined to go to his grave in sorrow because of the loss of his son, because his son was dead. Might feel a little bit like the prodigal son, the dad, whose son came to him and said, Dad... I want all of my inheritance. I want, I, want, I want my inheritance. Apparently the dad was pretty liquid, as we would say, because he gave the son whatever he was due. The son leaves the home and he, and he goes into, it says, into a far country and he wastes the substance on riotous living. The dad lost his son. He, he took his inheritance and he ran away. Might feel a little bit like that. Might feel like the Apostle Paul. In Romans chapter 9, we studied this a couple, of, a couple of weeks ago, and he said there was a great heaviness and a continued sorrow in his heart for his kinsmen according to the flesh. It, it says there in that chapter that he would give in his life if his Jewish brothers and sisters would have accepted Jesus. He was willing to put his life on the line. A great sorrow because of his kinsmen of the flesh. It's going to feel bad if we lose our children preacher friend of mine said one time, and I may have said this from the pulpit before, um, <clears throat> it's extremely emotional. It's probably the most powerful thing I've ever heard a man say. He said that uh, he knew something that would make hell, however bad it was, 10,000 times worse. And that would be to raise up his eyes and torment himself and his children there because of a failure to be what a daddy ought to be. 
That's powerful for a man to say. It's going to feel like that. We've got an obligation to raise our children, and we've got an obligation to raise them the right way, dads. It's a long shot. We start talking about archery. Matthew chapter 7 talks about the straight gate and this narrow way, and that focusing on, on Jesus and getting to heaven is um, not easy. Brother Danny talked a couple of uh, weeks ago maybe about um, the fact that Jesus' commandments are not grievous. And he said that he pointed out that the yoke is easy and the burden is light, and all of those things are true. His commandments are not grievous. What makes his commandments hard, as Brother Sam pointed out at the table that same day, and I can testify to that as well, is that we get out into the world and we take the world and we put it in our hearts. And our pure hearts go from being pure to having all of this worldly stuff in it. And then the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life become enticing to us. And it's hard to stay focused on Jesus. What Jesus wants us to do is not hard. What's hard is staying away from the world because of the devil. It's kind of like, you know, we talked about Adam and Eve, and you remember the story there when uh, they, after they've partaken of the tree, they go and they weave, the, they weave the fig leaves together, and when the Lord comes in the still of the evening, He says, where are you guys at? What are you doing? And they say, we were naked. And He said, who told you you were naked? If you hadn't been exposed to the sin, you wouldn't know it was a sin, right? And so that's what makes it hard is when we get out in the world and we get entangled in the world, we remember this, the parable of the thorns. We get all involved in the world and those thorns seek to choke us out. And the world, focusing on the world, it makes it hard. Straight is the gate, narrow is the way, so we've got to get focused. So the first thing that uh, we need to recognize if we're going to hit the bullseyes is we've got to be pointed in the right direction. We've got to be pointed in the right direction. We've got to stay away from the world and we've got to get pointed towards the bullseye. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and beginning in verse number 4, it says, it, it's got a verse or a phrase there that the Jewish people, it's what they call their profession of faith. They weave it into their clothes. They recite it in the morning when they get up. They recite it at night. It's called their Shema. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. They write it everywhere. They put it in their clothing. That's their testament of faith. That's probably the most important sentence to them in the Bible. Well, why is that important? Well, the second verse in verse number 5 says this, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. You say, that's in Deuteronomy? Yeah, it's in Deuteronomy. Well, I thought it was in the New Testament. It is in the New Testament, right? The Lord quotes it. And what's he say about it? That's the first and the greatest commandment of all. If you can get that done, you've got it whipped, brothers and sisters. If you can put the Lord so centered in your life and love Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. As Brother Danny said, the rest of it's easy. The rest of it's easy. But it doesn't stop there in Deuteronomy. It gives us some insight into our homes. It says, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Well, how do we put them in thy heart? Well, wait a minute, he's not through. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Daddies, that's our responsibility. And mommies, it's our responsibility to, to teach them diligently unto our children. The writer here in Deuteronomy says y'all, you'll talk about them when you sit down. You'll talk about them in your house. You'll talk about them when you're walking. You'll talk about them when you're lying down. You'll talk about them when you're resting. 
get the point, you're going to have to talk about them. It's going to have to be synergistic in your life. It's going to have to be what you're focused on. I read a prayer. Young man's looking through the glass at the hospital, at the nursery, at all the babies in the bassinet, and the, the prayer went like this, Lord Jesus Christ, help me to realize that that son of mine is not just another mouth to feed, but a living soul to raise for thee. That's what we've got to realize. That's where it all starts. If we're going to take back this country, if we're going to win the, win the world for Christ, it starts with our own children. <clears throat> you might think of Manoah. Manoah said this in Judges chapter 13, How shall we order the child, and how shall we do unto him? And he asked that before Samson was even born. He wanted to know, how are we going to take care of this gift that the Lord has given us? Hannah, you remember Hannah? Hannah, was, um, she was praying, and she was praying so intently. She was sitting with her eyes closed praying, and her mouth was moving. And Eli the priest thought she was drunk. And he said, hey, woman, get up and go home. And she said, no, I'm not drunk. I was praying. And he says, well, bless you on your prayer. Well, this is what she prayed. She said... Uh, and she said, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaiden and remember me and not forget thine handmaiden, but will give unto thine handmaiden a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall be no razor upon his head. She was going to raise him as a Nazarene. And you know what happened? She was blessed with a child. She was blessed with the prophet Samuel. And when Samuel was born, what did she do? She gave Samuel to Eli the priest, and Eli raised Samuel. She gave him to the Lord all the days of his life. And Samuel was the last judge of Israel, one of the greatest men, had a lot of faith. He is listed in Hebrews chapter 11, where we call the honor roll of faith. Samuel's listed there as a man of great faith, the last judge, because his mama thought it was important that he would be raised right. So another thing, if we're going to hit this bullseye that's important, is the environment that the arrow is going to sail through. The environment that this child is going to be raised in is vitally important if we're going to hit the bullseye. So just like when you let that arrow go, you've got to take account and take into account the wind and the rain and everything in order for that arrow to hit its target, you're going to have to take into account things in your children's lives, and you're going to have to control the environment. I told some folks in the Bible study this week, Wednesday night, I said, I wished I would have studied this 30 years ago. I would have been so much better at that. So for some of you that are raising young children, Jeremy, some of you guys, I'm, man, let it sink in. That's all I can say, brother, because this is important. Getting the home right and raising your kids in the right environment is vital to their success. The environment is so important. So when we think when we think about the Christian home, the first thing is you need to know is it needs to be a refuge for them. We sang the song Sanctuary this morning. I asked Brother Michael to lead that. And that song Sanctuary talks about making our hearts pure, but it also could be extended to our homes. We need to make our homes a sanctuary for our children. Brother Sam and I were talking about, you know, the, some of the lives that we've lived and the things we've seen, and those things make being Christian hard. And again, it's because you've been exposed to them and you've seen them. If you didn't know anything about them, they wouldn't be temptations for you. So when you've got your home, Brother Steve, a couple of months ago, talked about gatekeepers on our heart. He talked about not letting the bad stuff in. 
As parents, that's our responsibility in the home. Keep it a refuge of love. And make them understand, make our children understand what the right example is. The right example is not me. It's not Michael. It's not anybody. We can be the greatest dads, and I'm not saying that I am. I'm certainly not. But even if we are the greatest dads, that's not the example that our children need to look up to. The example they need to look up to is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that's ever been perfect. That's the example that you've got to put forth in front of your children to raise them up the right way. Because we're going to sin. We're going to fall short. And this one's interesting. Your home needs to be a place of training. I did some math. So for those of you that like math, if you take your children and you bring them to church Sunday morning, and let's say you come back to our afternoon service, which is at 1.30, and let's say you take them to my house or somebody else's house, or you go to a, a church that has an assembly on Wednesday night, and so you, you think, hey, I'm, I'm a pretty good dad, right? I'm a pretty good parent. I've, I've got my kids, and we've gone to three different, you know, we're, we're just rolling in the Christian life. Man, we're busy all the time. We went to church three hours. You realize if you, if you did that at that rate, it would take you eight years to give them the same amount of training they'll get in the first grade. Is it any wonder we're losing our children? Eight years to equate what they're going to get in one year in first grade. It's got to be more than that. Your home has got to be a sanctuary. And this is where I've fallen down my whole life. So I'm preaching to the choir here. Our home has not been a home where we studied enough and where we trained enough. I've been blessed with three good kids that are all in the church. That's not a reflection of me as much as it is a reflection of them and the choices they've decided to make. Our homes need to be a place of training. It needs to be a place where they can get three good meals a day and they can get a thousand meals for their hearts. That's what our homes need to be. I'm reminded of the story of Joshua only because... We tend to place something that Joshua said in our homes a lot. Several of us have got a saying of his that's uh, either, you know, may, maybe it's carved into something, maybe it's written on something or whatever. But Joshua and Caleb are part of, a, are, are part of 12 guys that go into this land of milk and honey that God had promised them as spies. They go into this land of milk and honey, honey and they come out of that land and they say, Ten of those guys go, man, it's a beautiful place. All 12 of them say it's a beautiful place. There's awesome stuff there. They bring back grapevines that they've got to carry on sticks between two men. It's a beautiful land. And the Lord is about to give it to them. But ten of them come back and they say, but there's giants over there. There's big people. I don't think we can take them. Joshua and Caleb say, we can take them because the Lord's on our side. But at the end of the day, they make the decision not to take the land that the Lord had promised them. The Lord's punishment for that is 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. They wander around in the wilderness for 40 years until everybody that's older than Joshua and Caleb have died. Joshua's the leader. Now he takes that land. He occupies that land as the land grant promise that uh, the Lord had given to Israel and its people. He knocks down all the cities. He takes Jericho. That's the first city. At the end of his life, he's 110 years old. Here's, uh, I said all that to get to this. He says, choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Now, he gives them some other options. He says you can serve the gods that are here in this land. You can serve the gods of Egypt that, you were, that some people were serving before you were brought out. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. 
And that, uh, that nation did serve the Lord for as long as the people that were alive when Joshua died there after he made that statement. As long as they were alive, they served the Lord. <clears throat> Another point. Oh, that's Joshua 24. A little fellow follows me. A careful man I want to be, a little fellow follows me. I do not dare to go astray for fear he'll go the self-same way. I cannot once escape his eyes. Whatever he sees me do, he tries. Like me, he says he's going to be the little chap who follows me. He thinks that I am good and fine, believes in every word of mine. The base in me, he must not see that little fellow who follows me. I must remember as I go through summer's sun and winter snow, I'm building for the years to be in the little chap that follows me. We've got to recognize that our children not only deserve the right to be well-fed, they deserve the right to be well-fed, or well-fed, well-led. I'll get that right. Not only to deserve a good square meals, but they deserve to be led the right way. The little chap that follows me. There's a country and western song, most of you know it. I don't even remember who sings it, but it talks about the little boy that's doing everything his dad says, right? And he starts off by saying a bad word when they hit the brakes and the sippy cup falls and the french fries fly and he says a bad word. His dad said, where'd you learn that? And he said, Dad, I want to be just like you. I'm your little buckaroo. And the dad goes home and he goes out and he prays and he says, you know, Lord, help me to lead this, to, to, to be the right kind of a dad. And that night as he tucks his son into bed, his little boy is praying by the bed. And he said, where'd you learn to do that? He said, I want to be just like you, Dad. I'm your little buckaroo. That's what our children are. They're going to follow us. They're going to imitate us. They're going to mimic us. And we need to be the right types of leaders. Marriage. I uh, I read something over the Internet when I was putting this together. It says, The home is bound to be full of pepper if the dad is so busy trying to make his salt that he forgets about his sugar. Open your books to 1 Peter chapter 3, please. I didn't put this on the. Uh, I didn't put this up on the board. First uh, Peter chapter three says, "Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives." So what that says is, wives, submit yourselves to the husbands, lead a good Christian life, so that even if your husband's not going to church, he'll be won by your good life. He'll be brought to the. Even if he's not studying the word, the conversation, your manner of life will bring him ultimately to salvation. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not, let it not be that outward adorning of uh, plating of the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price." For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being a subjection to their own husbands. Even if Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as also, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid of, or not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as under the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together in the grace of life, 
that your prayers be not hindered. So the Bible there talks about and gives us a little bit of insight into the home. And this is not going to be a study on the home, but it basically says for the wives to treat your husbands and honor them and and for uh, you husbands to treat your wives right. There's a favorite verse of mine, or it used to be a favorite verse of mine. It says, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And any time we get in a fight, I used to throw that at Sheila. Hey, Sheila, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And she took that for a long time until she figured out how to answer me. And she said, Yancey, if there were more Abrahams, there'd be more Sarahs. She's a pretty smart girl. So, um, husbands, love your wives. And wives, you need to uh, look up to your husbands. Husbands are the leaders of the home. That's the, way that, that's the way the Lord set it up. That doesn't mean they're to run roughshod over the home, but that means that at the end of the day, when we stand before God as men in our homes, God's going to hold us accountable for the leadership of that home. He's going to hold the wives accountable for things too, but he's going to hold us accountable for how we led the home. <clears throat> we read First Peter 3. So just a little talk about this word humidity. You know, when you shoot an arrow, at least in the olden days, even the least little things like water droplets in the air can affect the ultimate outcome of the shot. It's not so much anymore with compound bows and and, uh, fiberglass arrows and composite feathers and all the fancy bows and stuff that we have. But in the olden days, even the amount of water in the air could affect how the thickness of the air could affect the shot. And in our homes, little things can make a difference. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about the devil, and it says that though it, it tells us to look out and to be ready to fight against the wiles of the devil. And we've had a sermon on, I called it uh, devil, the Satan the Schemer. We know that the devil is, uh, and I always think about the cartoon, right, Wiley Coyote. Every time I think about this wily devil, he's trying to trick us. He's getting the best stuff he can and throwing it at us, whether it's food or some, anything we'd like. Pride of life, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. He's going to use all those weapons against us. We've got to shield the home, and we've got to protect it against even the least little things. The last thing that uh, is important that I want to talk about in making a good shot and hitting the bullseye is the release. It's important how we release the bow in order for the arrow to hit the shot. And it's vitally important in how we release our children in the home. We need to stop cutting apron strings and start untying them. It's not a matter of just kicking our children out. We need to stay involved in our kids' lives. And our kids don't like to hear that sometimes. Sometimes they do. But the Bible tells us... uh, tells us that in, in, the, in the, I think, alludes to that in Titus chapter 2, when it talks about the older women teaching the younger women. We're, we're to stay involved in the lives of the young people and make sure that they're doing the things that they need to do. That's our responsibility. It's not, it doesn't stop when they get to be 18. It doesn't stop when they obey the gospel. It doesn't stop, you know. They're our kids forever. And uh, they're the church's kids forever, too. So just remember that. Everybody hears mom and daddy sometimes when you get to the building. But the release is vitally important if we're going to hit the arrow. So if we're going to hit the bullseye this morning, our children need to be saved. If we're going to save our children, we need to recognize our role as parents in that, in that, uh, in that uh, 
process. We need to provide the proper home. We need to continue to support and to train. And finally, we need to recognize that it is a blessing. Our children are a blessing to us, and we need to enjoy that blessing. I wanted to talk to the kids just a minute. Kids, if, um, if, you're, not, if you're not a Christian, and even if you are, recognize that if you've got godly parents, the best day of their life was the day you chose to obey the gospel. You're going to get married. You're going to, do a, you're going to graduate from college, maybe high school, whatever it is. All those things will fail in comparison to the day that you decide to turn your life over to Jesus Christ. I've been blessed with three children that have, gotten, that have done that. I actually got to baptize the third one. was honored to do that last year. But there's nothing that's more important than that. But as children, you can either keep your parents from being leaders in the church or you can lead lives that honor them and allow them to have future leadership opportunities in the church. You've got some power. And it's vitally important. And as parents, the last thing I like to say is never give up. Remember the story of the prodigal son. We talked about that a little bit. This prodigal son went away into a far country and he wasted his substance on riotous living. He spent all of his money. He was working for a pig farmer slopping hogs. That's where he ended up. And at the end of the day, he said, I was thinking about eating what I was feeding the hogs. He said he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the hogs did eat. But it said he came to himself and he said, wait a minute, back home, the hired servants of my father, they're living better than I'm living. I'll get up and I'll go home and I'll tell dad, it's, you know, I'm, I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And we know the story. His father saw him a great way off and he ran and he kissed on his neck and he put a ring on his finger and he put clothes and he killed the fatted calf and he said, behold, my son that was lost is found. He's come back home. Never give up. Never give, on, give up on your children. When he was in the far country, that prodigal son, the thing that saved him was the memory of a good home. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain to build it as we stand and sing the song.